Welcome to Reading the Bible. I'm John Robertson, and I'm here to help you understand the Bible, to sharpen your skills at Bible analysis, and to help you make it to heaven. Are you ready to do some serious Bible study? Then let's grab a Bible together and dig in. The truth is there. We just have to be willing to put the work in to find it. The topic for today's podcast is the subject of baptism. What do you think about baptism? Is it necessary for salvation? What have you heard about the subject of baptism? Uh, I did some research on the web and found some interesting things that people were saying about baptism and just uh, give a couple of those things that I saw. Just as far as a random quote, there was an article written by a man by the name of Larry Moyer, and the title of the article was, Is Baptism Necessary for Salvation? And he begins the article by saying, The answer is an emphatic no. Baptism is a public testimony that a believer desires to follow Christ as a disciple, but it is in no way essential to receiving God's free gift of eternal life. Okay, and then what I did is I just typed in a couple of different, uh, Googled a couple of different groups. Uh, The Baptist, for example, what do Baptists believe when it comes to baptism? And this is what came up, said baptism, uh, I'm sorry, Baptists believe that the Bible teaches that baptism symbolizes that a person has been saved and is not a means of salvation. Baptism is not a means of channeling saving grace, but rather is a way of testifying that saving grace has been experienced. Okay, and then another one I looked up was the Catholics. What, what do Catholics believe about baptism? And again, Googling this, and this is what it came up. It says, Catholics believe that baptism forgives all sins and that were, that were committed before baptism, including original, mortal, and venal sins. It turns the baptized into a newly adopted son or daughter of God and a member of the church. Okay, so those are just a couple of random uh, quotes, uh, beliefs of different religious groups and, and people. Uh, the question is, what do you believe about baptism? But maybe the more important question that we all should be asking is, what does the Bible say about baptism? Let's begin by defining our terms. The word baptism comes from a Greek word, baptismo, and according to Liddell and Scott's Greek word studies, They say it means to dip in or under water, to be over head or ears in debt. Moulton, in his word study, says that the Greek baptismo means to dip, immerse, to cleanse, or to purify by washing, or to baptize. It's kind of fascinating when you look into the Bible, you find a lot of people were baptized as recorded in the Bible itself. Jesus himself was baptized, Mark chapter 1, verse 9 through 11. We also find in Acts chapter 22 that Ananias told Saul of Tarsus before he would become the Apostle Paul. At verse 16 of that chapter, he said, Why do you wait? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. So the Apostle Paul was baptized. We look at Acts chapter 2 and verse 37 through 41. We find that there was 3,000 people on the day of Pentecost that were baptized. At Acts chapter 18, we find that the Corinthians were baptized Then again, at Acts chapter 8, verse 36 through 39, we find the Ethiopian eunuch was baptized. What a great story that was. He was riding in his chariot, 
reading from the book of Isaiah chapter 53, Philip the evangelist comes along, says, do you know what you're reading? And he says, how can I accept someone guide me? And so Philip began to preach Christ to him, and they came to this water, and the eunuch says, here's water, what hinders me from being baptized? And so Philip took the eunuch down into the water, and they were baptized, and he baptized him, and he came up out of the water, it says. So another example of bab- baptism in the Bible. The question is, as we're looking at all these examples of being, people being baptized, is why, why? Why were they being baptized? This seems to be the great controversial issue of not only our day, but, but all the way going back to the Bible days. But today you talk to people about baptism, and in, in some cases uh, they just get angry about the subject. I'm not quite sure why that would be, uh, but uh, it is something, a subject that irritates people sometimes. But we don't want to be irritated by something that is a, a prevalent topic in the Bible. We want to make sure that we understand uh, the issue of baptism. So the question is, why were people being baptized? The only thing, the only way that we can answer that question <clears throat> is with the Bible itself, because the Bible is the one that talks about baptism. So the Bible tells us at Acts 2.38 that people were baptized for the forgiveness of sins. At Acts chapter 2 and verse 37, you may remember in your studies, where those on Pentecost were convicted of, sin, of the sin of crucifying the Christ, and, and they said, what do we do? And Peter answers at verse 38, he said, Repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. For the promises to you and your children is as many as are afar off as the Lord our God shall call unto him. Uh, so forgiveness is what the Bible says about baptism. At Acts twenty-two sixteen, Ananias told Saul to wash away your sins, be baptized and wash away your sins. And then again, at 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21, the apostle Peter tells us that baptism saves. Okay, so there you have the three things. You have the issue of forgiveness, you have the issue of washing away sins, and you have the issue of being saved. But there are some things that, that, that I realize that we have to understand, that we have to discuss. So what I want to do is just go back into, into the Bible, uh, dig into the nuts and bolts of things, and figure this out, to have a solid answer for the question of baptism. Is baptism necessary for salvation? What is the objective of baptism? Let's let's answer some of these types of questions in this study. Now, first of all, we need to understand some things about the promise that God had originally made to Abraham. At Genesis chapter 12, starting there at verse 1, going through about verse 4 there, We find God promising Abraham that through his seed, all nations would be blessed. And then we turn over to the New Testament, and we find the Apostle Paul telling us at Galatians chapter 3 and verse 8 that God was preaching the gospel to Abraham on that occasion. And then at Romans chapter 4, reading there from verse 1 through 8, we find that Abraham's eureka moment regarding salvation came when he understood that even though he had sinned, he could be saved. And then going through verse 6, 7, and 8 of that chapter, we find that the blessing spoke of to Abraham was the forgiveness of sins. So uh, there is this relationship then between God's grace, forgiving, being forgiving, uh, being merciful, being kind in such a way, and forgiveness. And the best way that we can do, uh, do that or understand that is to look in our Bibles, the book of Ephesians, in chapter 1 and verse 7, 
and compare that to Acts 2.38. So all we want to do is just honestly look at the Word of God and see what it has to say about this subject. So at Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7, listen carefully. The Apostle Paul, speaking of Christ, said, "...in whom we have our redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of His grace." So we have the forgiveness of our sins, and that's by the grace of God. So then I turn over to Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, and I read there, Repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So what I'm doing is just making some connections. I'm seeing that God's grace, the forgiveness of sins, is achieved through baptism. So sometimes at some point, somebody has certainly must ask, how... How do we receive this forgiveness? How can the blood of Christ be applied to me? And uh, the best answer is to say that uh, according to Romans chapter 5, verse 1, 2, 3, and 4 there, the Apostle Paul says we gain access to God's grace, to justification through faith. And so when we connect Acts chapter 3 and verse 38 to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7, to Romans chapter 5, verse 1 through 3, then we see some very valuable information there. God's grace is the forgiveness of sins, and one achieves the forgiveness of sins through baptism. So that's how you come in contact with the blood of Christ. But let's talk a little bit more about this. I I know that there are some that uh, disagree with that, but I hope by the end of this podcast that you'll be saying to yourself, I, I cannot disagree with God in God's Word. So we just want to see what God's Word has to say about that. So let's let's look again at the Bible. Let's understand some more things. Let's understand things about the body of Christ itself in relationship to baptism. You know, at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, the Apostle Paul tells us that Christ's body is the church. And at Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, 27, and 28, the same apostle tells us that we get into the body of Christ, we clothe ourselves with the body of Christ, we are considered Christ through the act of baptism. And then we also want to understand something about shadows. One of the most significant ways to understand the Word of God is to look into the subject of shadows in the Bible. And when we speak of shadows, we're talking about the idea of the body of Christ casting shadows of things in the Old Testament. And, and the best way to understand that, you could read on your own time, but look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. The Apostle Paul talks about this casting of shadows in relationship to Christ. Now, Christ's body cast a shadow in the Old Testament of various principles and things that are known as the truth. This is what Christ is, John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So let's look back in the Old Testament, and let's notice some things about baptism in relationship to shadows. The first thing that we want to talk about, as far as shadows goes, is the subject of Noah. Everyone's familiar with the the story of Noah, how that God had warned uh, the world through Noah that he was going to flood the world. Uh, It would would be saved. People would only be saved by entering into the ark that Noah would build. And when you read through the story there at Genesis chapter 6, you come to the end, you find that Noah, his wife, and Noah's three sons and their wives, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, 
Uh, only eight people got onto the ark, and everybody else died. But there's a big lesson to learn here, and the Apostle Peter talks about it at First cha- Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. So let me read this to you. First Peter chapter 3 and verse 18, the Apostle Peter writes, Because Christ also suffered for sins once, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in his flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, that aforetime were disobedient, when the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was preparing, wherein a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water, which also, after a true likeness, does now save you, even baptism, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ." So uh, there he tells us that baptism saves, and he gives the example uh, of Noah and how Noah's family was saved by water. And he says, even so, we can be saved by water. But he makes a very fascinating statement in this subject of shadows. He says that baptism is the answer of a clear conscience. Now, a moment ago, we noted that one gets uh, gains access to the blood of Christ, to God's grace through baptism. Now, we want to see another aspect of that, that is gaining access to the blood of Christ, to God's grace through baptism, by looking at this passage at 1 Peter chapter 3, and verse 18 through 22. Again, baptism clears the conscience, he says. Now, let's go over in our Bibles and read something fascinating again at Hebrews chapter 9, beginning at verse 11. Hebrews 9 and verse 11, the Hebrew writer says, But Christ, having come a high priest of the good things to come, through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, nor yet through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, entered in once for all into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling them have been defi- them that have been defiled sanctify unto cleanliness of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish unto God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So hopefully you caught that. The apostle Peter tells us it's through baptism that the conscience is clear. In Hebrews chapter 9, the Hebrew writer tells us that our conscience is cleared through the blood of Christ. So how do we come in contact with the saving blood of Christ? It's obvious. It's through baptism. This is the way the Bible's written. It's written in such a way that it challenges, challenges its readers to figure things out. That's why we are commanded to study. That's why we are commanded to look into this book and to gain knowledge. Paul even prays to the Ephesians that, that, that people would spend time reading the Bible, understanding the Bible, figuring these things out, understanding the depth and the height and the width of things, the wisdom of God. Okay, so again, uh, we've seen some interesting things regarding shadows, but, but let's look at another issue, and, and let's go back to the topic of Abraham again in relationship to baptism and shadows. 
Now, I, I find an interesting statement made at Acts chapter 7 in verse 8 on this topic. Now, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen is giving a defense. The Sanhedrin council has charged him with uh, saying things that militate against the Mosaic law in the temple and so forth. And so Stephen begins giving this defense, and his objective is to show the Sanhedrin council uh, through the issue of shadows that Jesus is the Christ, okay? So in that context, we read this statement at Acts chapter 7 and verse 8. Stephen says, uh, speaking about Abraham, he says, and God gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him the eighth day, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob the twelve patriarchs. Okay, so this is a very significant statement here. God gave Abraham the covenant, uh, and that word covenant literally means a promise of property or a will. In other words, God has an inheritance to give, and he refers to that as his covenant. It's the, the idea of a last will and testament. If you're in somebody's will, then that means you're going to inherit something. So God has a will, and he wants to give things to people. And so that's what he's talking about here. God gave Abraham the covenant, and he says it's the covenant of circumcision. Now, this word circumcision is a genitive noun, and it's a genitive of source noun. So what we find in a genitive of source, uh, being combined with that word, the covenant, uh, we could reword the sentence to make very clear meaning, uh, see it very clearly when he says, he gave him the covenant, a promise or will, or uh, to, be, to inherit in something. God gave Abraham the co covenant dependent on circumcision. That's the idea of a genitive of source. Uh, you have something that's dependent upon something else. God gives his inheritance, uh, and that inheritance is dependent on circumcision. Okay, so, so that's Acts 7, verse 8. It's very significant. What it says is that God's promise of his inheritance was conditioned upon circumcision. Now, again, in the subject of shadows, we turn our attention to the book of Colossians in chapter 11 and verse 12, and we find that the shadow of baptism is circumcision. So, in other words, whenever you're reading about circumcision in the New, New Testament, one of the layers of that is uh, the issue uh, of baptism. And probably be best for me just to read that. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 11, Paul says, "...in whom, speaking of Christ, in whom you were also circumcised..." with a circumcision not made with hands and the putting off of the body of the flesh and the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, wherein you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Okay, so uh, circumcision is the shadow of baptism. And, and that's very significant because it helps us to understand that when we're reading about the inheritance of God, making it to heaven, I understand that it's conditioned upon me being baptized. So it's no wonder then that the apostle Peter said at Acts 2.38 to those that said, what do we do to be saved? And Peter says, repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, uh, that in order for them to receive the inheritance of forgiveness and eternal life with God, they had to be baptized. 
And again, it's no wonder that the Apostle Peter said at 1 Peter 3, 21, that baptism saves. Okay, so, so that's a great example of how shadows work. But we may want to look at another one while we're on this subject. Let's think about Moses. Now, Moses was a shadow or a type of Christ. We know that from reading the Old Testament to the New Testament, and we see that Moses was a mediator like Christ. Moses was a lawgiver like Christ. Moses, probably the one that we're most uh, impressed by, is the fact that Moses delivered Israel out of Egyptian bondage. And so when we turn to John chapter 8, we turn to Romans chapter 6, we see the comparisons. We see that Christ delivers man out of the bondage of sin, like Moses delivers Egypt, uh, I'm sorry, Israel out of Egyptian bondage. So, so there's the typology. All right, so here's the fascinating thing. These people that were in bondage, Israel that was in bondage to Egypt, was not delivered until they got on the other side of the Red Sea. And so when we read from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1 through 4, we find that these people that Moses brought out of Egypt, you remember he stands there at the Red Sea and he opens it by the power of God, and all of Israel walks through the dry land to the other side of the Red Sea, and then the walls of the water collapse upon the Egyptian soldiers, his army, Pharaoh's army, and they all died. And at that point, they had been delivered. And 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1 through 4 says that they were baptized in the Moses. So you can easily see the comparisons. You can easily see the shadows. Christ delivers us from the bondage of sin when we've been baptized. So they put their trust in Moses, and they went through those walls of water to, on dry ground to the other side to safety. Even so, uh, people that put their trust in God, put their faith in God, will do what He commands, and they will be delivered from their sins. And that commandment is to be baptized. That's powerful, isn't it? Okay, so uh, there's another one that I want to look at is, is Naaman, as far as shadows go, shadows and teaching the truth. You may remember the story of, of Naaman. He had leprosy, and he wants to figure out how he can get rid of this leprosy. He, leprosy. he hears that there's a, a man in Israel, there's a prophet in Israel that's able to deliver him or, or uh, cleanse him of this leprosy. And that man's name is Elisha, the prophet of God. He comes to Elisha, and Elisha tells Naaman to go wash in the Jordan River seven times, and he'd be clean. Well, Naaman had a problem with this. At 2 Kings chapter 5 and verse 11, he said, Well, I, I thought that he would have told me something else to do in order to be cleansed of leprosy. And so there's, there's a significant shadow here. In order for Naaman to be cleansed, he had to do what the commandment of the prophet was. Go wash in the river and you'll be clean, even though he thought maybe things should be done differently. Now think about that as far as today goes. Here's salvation, and many people say, well, I think that we should do things this way. When God specifically states that baptism is the way one is saved, 1 Peter 3.21, baptism washes away sins, Acts chapter 22, verse 16. I, I actually read on the, on the net when I was Googling that beliefs in baptism that someone said baptism does not wash away sins. Baptism does not save. Uh, baptism is not for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, I find it very fascinating that people would be so brazen to say such things, 
when God says the, other, the opposite. God says baptism saves. Ba- God says baptism washes away sin. Bab- uh, God says baptism forgives one of sins. But man says something different. So here's the, here's the, deal, here's the deal. What will you believe? Are you going to believe what some pastor out there tells you, what some youth group leader tells you out there, what, what some person tells you, or, or are you going to believe what you think in your heart should be done, or are you going to just open your Bible and say, what does God have to say about that? And that's going to say a lot. Your answer to that question is going to say a lot about you and about your character and about what your objectives are in this life. If you're wanting to follow a man, then follow him. If you're going to follow God, then follow God. You may remember Elijah said that in the contest of Mount Carmel. He told those people that were uh, those people of Israel that were worshiping Baal. He said, "If you're if you're going to follow God, then follow Him. If you're going to be a Baal worshiper, then follow Baal. You can't do both." So here it is. Then we have baptism for the forgiveness of sin. Baptism saves. And another fascinating aspect of of baptism is that it is. Uh, something that illustrates the fact that there is one uh, truth. There, there is a unity to the body of Christ. There is oneness. And uh, we see this at Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1. Th- this is a popular reading here. I think sometimes people miss the main focus, focal point here, though. Let me just read this to you. At Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1, he says, I therefore... Paul speaking, I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beseech you to walk worthily of the calling wherewith you were called, with all lowliness, meekness, long suffering, forbearing one another in love, giving diligence to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Okay, so the subject is a unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This, this is speaking of the idea of the truth, unity of the Spirit, the Spirit of truth. When everyone is holding to the one truth, then there is unity and there is peace. You know as well as I do, if you have several different people holding to different different ideas, there's no peace and there's no unity. So Paul says, give diligence to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And then he defines what he means. He says at verse 4, there is one body, there is one Spirit, even as also you were called in one hope of your calling one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all who is over all and through all and in all. So the point is, is that when you have a group of people that open the Bible, they see what the truth has to say about a subject such as baptism. They all understand that baptism is the way one gets into the grace of God or or has contact with the blood of Christ and receives his grace, the forgiveness of sins, and they are baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. All such people are displaying a unity of the Spirit. They're displaying that there is one body. There's not a multitude of bodies. There's one body, one church, one Spirit, one God, one truth. And so this this is demonstrated as you have a group of people that are seeing things the same way and upholding the truth. Do you now see that baptism is necessary for salvation? Let's go over a few things that we've talked about. Baptism is for forgiveness. That's not my words. That's what the Bible says. Acts 2.38. Baptism gains one access into God's grace. Romans 5, 1 through 4 that we talked about when we compare that to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7 and Acts 2.38. Read that again on your own. 
Third, baptism saves, 1 Peter 3.21. Baptism washes away sins, Acts chapter 22, verse 16. Baptism is the way one becomes holy as the Lord, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Sometimes people say, well, you know, we can't do that. But the command is, be holy as God is holy, 1 Peter 1, 16 and 17. One may say, how can I do that? Baptism. Baptism washes away sins. If you've had all your sins washed away, what remains? Nothing. No sins. You've been clean. You're clean. Somebody says, well, we're going to sin again. Romans 3, 23. That's true. So what do we do then? We follow the instructions of 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, 9, and 10. We ask God to forgive us of those sins. There's nothing really hard here. It's unfortunate people have made made such a simple subject so complex when it's really not. And then the last thing we look at is that baptism puts one in Christ, and as such, they are a part of his one body, the church, as we looked at Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 through 28, and we compare that to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 through 23. Final question, have you been baptized for the forgiveness of your sins? I hope and pray that as you've listened to this podcast, that I've come across genuine, that I've done nothing but looked into the Word of God, and you've seen that, and you have drawn a proper conclusion, and that is that baptism is necessary to be saved. And God says, 1 Peter 1, verse 321, that baptism saves. That's not my words, that's God's words. Acts 2.38, baptism is for forgiveness of sins. That's not my words. That's the Bible. Baptism washes away sins, Acts twenty two sixteen. Not my words, the Word of God. So I hope and pray that you'll trust what the Word of God has to say and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and added to the Lord's church. If I can assist you in that, I'd be more than happy to. You can contact me, John Robertson, at J-U-A-N-C-R-O-B-E-R-T-S-O-N at Outlook.com. That's Juan C. Robertson at Outlook.com, and I'd be more than happy to help you. May God be with you, and thank you for listening to this podcast, and hope to see you with the next episode. Take care.